0: Welcome to this podcast series on pseudoscience, fake news, and how to fight back, supported by a grant from the Open Society Foundation and in partnership with the Challenging Pseudoscience Group at the Royal Institution of Great Britain. My name is Robert Pyra. Together with my colleague, Professor Marius Turda, we're inviting you to join a conversation about the meaning of history and the role of science in today's society. This is intended as a lively and urgent contribution to the understanding of pseudoscience and the uses and abuses of history in the era of so-called fake news. My guest today is Timothy Garton Ash, an international authority on the history of the present. He's the author of 10 books of political writing and of regular features in the New York Review of Books, The Guardian, and Far Beyond. He's professor of European studies at the University of Oxford, among his various titles and a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, Stanford University, as well as, of course, a well-known commentator on East Central European affairs. His work has received numerous international awards, and he's also featured on Time magazine's 100 Most Influential People list. So given this pedigree, which also includes a project on free speech from 2016 and a BBC radio series, Professor Gart Nash is perfectly placed to comment on the issues raised in our podcast, and we are indeed honoured and truly delighted to welcome him here today. Professor Gart Nash, thank you so much for joining us. Very nice to be with you. Thank you. Now, over the course of the series, we've heard about how history and science have become weaponized to support present-day illiberal politics in East Central Europe. And the contours of this trend, as seen most notably today in Hungary and Poland, have broadly been defined as a challenge to liberal democratic norms, as understood by the European Union, including attempts to shut down or muzzle independent media or politicize the judiciary. Professor, given your cross-regional expertise, I thought we might start by discussing the background to these developments, in other words, the longer-term genesis of how history has been used and abused across this region. So
1: let me start with a very nice comment made by a friend of mine called Konstanty Gebert, a well-known Polish journalist, who said, when Americans say that's history, they mean it's irrelevant. When Central and East Europeans say that's history, they mean it's the most important thing. And uh, that's very characteristic of this whole region. And therefore, the politics of history are crucial here in a way they aren't in some other places. And I would say, to start with, that there are two big misunderstandings or misrepresentations to false prisms through which what is happening, particularly in Poland and Hungary, but more widely, is viewed. One is a Western prism, and one is a, for want of a better word, Central European or Eastern prism. The Western prism is to say, well, we shouldn't be surprised because these societies have never quite been part of the true Enlightenment Europe. They've always been tendentially authoritarian. Look at their pre-1939 history, and so they're just reverting to form. And that is, as you well know, a stereotype of Eastern Europe that goes all the way back to the Enlightenment. There's a wonderful book by Larry Wolf called Inventing Eastern Europe, and you hear it again in the mouths of Emmanuel Macron, People, particularly in France, Belgium, Italy, Spain. And basically, it comes to the conclusion they're always going to be like that anyway. So, what are we doing with them in the European Union? Mm -hmm. The, so to speak, opposite distortion of history is the one you hear from the governing parties in Poland and Hungary, which is a mythological, two dimensional, highly simplistic nationalist version of their own history in which Poland always appears only as the heroic, freedom-loving, freedom-defending victim of European history, never as a victimizer. I'm sure you've talked about that in this series. And actually, Viktor Orban, also Hungary, the victim of the Treaty of Trianon, but still, and now even more, the heroic defender of the true conservative Christian Europe, against the others, the invaders, be it multicultural postmodern Western Europe or, quote-unquote, the Muslim invaders, the refugees. So those are the kind of two big, I think, distortions, one in the region and one from the West about the region, which is where one has to
0: start. Mm -hmm. And given that, Professor, how would you counter both those sets of arguments. And, of course, we're talking about a kind of double countering because we're talking about countering the Western argument in the East and the Eastern argument in the West.
1: Exactly. And so, I mean, the first thing to start with is good history and good journalism, obviously. And the tragedy of this story is that after a long period under communist rule in the Soviet bloc, when there was systematic distortion of history. The most famous and obvious example being the story of Katyn, the massacre of Polish officers in Katyn. When I started traveling to Poland in the late 1970s, the official version everywhere was still that this was 1941 and it had been done by the Germans and not 1940 and done by the Soviets on Stalin's order. So you had this massive systematic, the big lie, Orwellian distortion of history. Then you have a period post-1989 when using the chances of freedom, historians, journalists, filmmakers, novelists, had this tremendously nuanced, interesting exploration of history, Polish-Jewish relations, Polish-German relations, one can acknowledge that Poles were sometimes victimizers, not always the victims, and so on and so forth. And that is why this is such a retrograde step over the last five to ten years, particularly in both Poland and Hungary. So I think that Defending what has been achieved in scholarship and journalism since 1989 is the starting point. And in museums, for example, that that would be my starting point in the region itself. Critically, of course, defending what is taught in schools. As you may know, the new education minister of the Peace, Law and Justice Government, is going to introduce a new two year curriculum called History and Current Affairs, which is going to be a highly ideological curriculum. Only the other day, I was talking to school teachers in a secondary school in Western Poland. What are they going to do about it? Basically, they have to try and ignore the curriculum in order to give a more nuanced understanding of history. And these are people who spent Years investigated the German history of their time, the Jewish history of their time, doing exactly what is needed. And beyond that, of course, crucially, and I know you want to talk about this media. In terms of the Western narrative, this is a tricky one. Because when someone in France says, we're very worried about what's happening in Poland and Hungary, erosion of democracy and human rights and the rule of law, and when I say that, we seem to be saying exactly the same thing. And in political terms, we are saying the same thing. Something should be done about it. But intellectually, we're actually saying something completely different. So that's really quite a tricky one, because if I want the European Union to be more serious about respecting its own proclaimed values, of respect for democracy and the rule of law, I need... These other people in Western Europe who have these old stereotypes, but at the same time, I want to counter those stereotypes and say, no, look, these are very ancient, important, deeply European countries,
0: and they belong in the European Union and uh, thank you for saying that because surely this is where the key paradox arises or one of the key paradoxes which is that by saying those things we actually play into the illiberal hands of those in say poland and hungary particularly who will say well well there we go you don't understand us we have an exceptional history we've suffered as you said earlier we've suffered exceptionally this plays into the hands of those who suggest you don't understand us and that we are therefore right to forge our own path an illiberal path at that
1: so Of course, as you know, every country in Europe is exceptional.
0: Yes.
1: (laughs) Uh, There's a famous debate in German historiography about what's called the Sonderweg, the Mm, special path taken by Germany in the 20th century. And who is normal in that German historiography? Britain and France. So Britain thinks about itself as exceptional, but for German exceptionalism, Britain was the norm, and in every single European country, without exception, you can find a historiography of exceptionalism. So that's point number one. Point number two, I I think the difficulty is a slightly different one, which is that when being lectured by the EU about respect for the rule of law, democracy, et cetera, people in Central and Eastern Europe hear this discourse of Western superiority and the West dictating to the East. Now, when I make that critique, that's not present at all, because I start with a profound, lifelong sympathy with these countries. But it is, in fact, the case that there is that condescension and superiority coming from people in Western Europe who are saying exactly the same thing, which is why it's really important. And here, may I just say that Germany, which is, of course, Europe's central power, and the major member state in the EU, which in a way cares most about Central and Eastern Europe, together with Austria, Germany is so critical because Germany is a country that can do both, can say we have deep understanding and sympathy for your Central European history, but if you want to be a member of the club called the EU, you have to play by the rules. So that's a challenge. Third point, on your proposition that that what... Central and East European populists are saying is, hey, you don't understand our exceptionalism. But you know, in a way, what Viktor Orban is doing with great success is something much more ambitious than that. He is turning round the West European discourse, which says the only true Europe is in the West. There was a man called Gonzague de Renault, who talked about l'Europe Européenne the European Europe, the true Europe, which in his view was only the Europe of Western Christendom. And Orban turns this round and saying, we're not the exceptional ones. We are the only true defenders of the true European Europe. Uh, So we're speaking for the whole of Europe and you're the dangerous exception in the West.
0: Right. Well, thank you for raising that as well, because one of the things that's been mentioned quite a lot over the series is free speech. And obviously, given your your vast and obviously extremely impressive projects on this subject, we, I wanted to raise it in this context, because how can one defend free speech in these countries if that really is the key to uh, one of the keys to preserving a kind of pluralistic discussion that can challenge these narratives, precisely the narratives that we're talking about from within now, not less perhaps from without. Then how is that possible, obviously, given that these countries are becoming more repressive? That's obviously one dimension. Another dimension to it, I realise this is a sort of double-pronged question, is perhaps how we counter it then, of course, from the West. Because one thing we've noticed increasingly is this tendency to, and you you referred to it earlier, to posit the Western model as flawed because it's postmodern and so on. And in fact, therefore, free speech as part of that package is flawed by implication or by extension. Therefore, this is this is an alternative model. This is a better model. So again, it's a sort of double-headed question pivoting on what some would suggest is, is an answer to these problems, which is stoking a kind of pluralistic discourse that can challenge these exclusivist narratives.
1: So there is no democracy without free speech. It's no accident that our whole understanding of free speech in the West goes back to ancient Athens and uh, the notion of deliberative democracy. So, in my view, for example, in Poland today, the defense of free and pluralist media is the single most important thing to be done in the defense of democracy. It's actually more important than the rule of law, which has been so far eroded. I mean, of course, that's still important, but the free and pluralist media, which, as you know, are under fierce attack. And... These days, the greatest threat to free speech in this part of the world does not come via censorship, it comes via ownership. So if you look at the way that Viktor Orban has effectively got control of virtually all the media in Hungary, much more so than in Poland, obviously it's partly because he controls the state television and radio and news agencies and so on. That's still important. But beyond that, it's not. It's because he has got friendly oligarchs, friendly media owners, owning um, most of the media, ostensibly independent. I always like to say that, you know, Potemkin only did a Potemkin village, but Hungary in a way is a Potemkin country because the whole country has systems which are meant to look like what is required of an EU member state. So on the face of it, it media pluralism is there have been many different media, many different owners. They're all in cahoots with the powers that be. And, for example, state advertising, and this is documented in detail, only goes to the friendly friendly media. So it's by ownership and it's by money that control is exercised. If you look at Poland, again, the attack is coming through ownership and through money. So the same thing is happening with state advertising and state subsidies. The big attempt made recently to take over the most important independent television news channel, TVN, made on grounds of ownership. So in the name of repolonization. nothing to do with politics, of course, you understand just <laughs> repolonization. Now, so, so I think defending genuine pluralism of ownership and the economic foundations of a free pluralist media is here absolutely key. And I wish myself that the EU would be much more active in that respect. It has a very small media fund. I think it should have a much larger media fund. It should be much tougher. To do her credit, the Czech commissioner for the rule of law, Vera Jurova, a Czech commissioner who, by the way, has a large portrait photo of Václav Pavel on her wall, so she has a certain inspiration there, is preparing what she calls a European media freedom law. And that could be very important. I think this is absolutely crucial. By the way, one danger is Gleichaltung and monopoly. The other danger is, and this too reflects on West East, that Poland becomes like the United States, a hyper polarized media environment in which basically there are two countries. And two different realities.
0: Right. Well, thank you so much. I think that's a, an extremely useful and detailed answer. And, and also, of course, going into the, the question of how to fight back. I mean, you've you've written extensively on the EU and what the EU can do in this in this matrix. And perhaps we'll come back to that over the course of the conversation. I just wanted to go into, we've talked about a little bit about the fight back and also the how, how is this happening? Uh, What are the kind of contours of the shutdown of free speech? But also I wanted to ask a little about the why. Why is this happening? I mean, we mentioned exceptionalism a little bit. I wondered if you, especially because you have a quite a personal acquaintance with the region, whether you had any perspectives on why this is happening. We've heard, of course, about, there are many theories about the the, the kind of rise of populism, but in East Central Europe, it does feel to have... slightly different flavor communism is often mentioned of course in this context as a sometimes as a legitimizing factor for the populist course you know cleaning out the trash so to speak and lustration this is often used as a a sort of justification for the illiberal democracy that hungary and poland are apparently pursuing but without sort of giving you an answer and a question or my answer and a question i just wonder whether you had any thoughts on the why actually behind what we're seeing today
1: so in Indeed, i mean, in my own engagement with this region, with Central Europe, started in the late 1970s. And therefore, the great experience of my younger years was seeing the dissident movements, the opposition movements, solidarity in Poland, culminating in 1989. And I wrote a, an eyewitness account of the Velvet Revolutions of 1989 called The Magic Lantern. For the 30th anniversary, I did a new edition. and I did a long chapter looking at what had happened in the last 30 years, which is to say, to a significant degree now, at what went wrong and trying to answer your question. So I've thought about it quite deeply, and I'm afraid the answer is complicated, as so often, but let me just signal a few points. The explanation that I think is quite inadequate is the one I talked about at the beginning, namely, it was ever thus. This is so deep in the political culture. Obviously, elements of haughtyism in Hungary or of indeczio in Poland, elements of pre-war political culture have been revived. That is clear. But that's not the primary cause. The primary cause, it seems to me, lies in the last 30 years. And what it is, is You have the factors that have led to populism in Britain, to Brexit, to Trump, to the success of Marine Le Pen, the AfD in Germany. You have all those factors. And on top of that, you have a set of factors specific to the transition in Central Europe. So to give you uh, a couple of examples, characteristic for all populism is this resentment of inequality, right? Mm-hmm. Peculiar to post-communist Europe is that that sense of inequality is linked to a resentment of historical injustice. Here am I. I was a shipyard worker in Gdańsk. stood with solidarity, had repression as a result. And here I am 30 years later, after the great change, still sitting in a a two-bedroom flat, unemployed, poor. And General Jaruzelski's former spokesman, Jezu Oban, is living the high life in a villa with champagne and caviar and whatever else, you know, so that there's that added sense of historical injustice uh, coming from the nature of the transition, whereas we know members of the nomenclatura, people who were well-placed in 1989, did get rich quick. Uh, The politics of history plays some role in the West, but much more in East Central Europe because there was a sense of a missing catharsis, a missing reckoning with the past, which is absolutely central to the agenda of both Fidesz and peace in in Poland and absent in the West. And one can go down the list, I think, and find a whole series of factors general to populism in our time specific to east central europe but the causes are mainly in the last 30 years not so much in the last 300.
0: thank you professor that, that while you were speaking i, I was m- reminded of an applebaum's recent book which talks very much about the human factor in all of this in other words this as you say this is within the compass of living memory and recent and lived experience And these actors are now playing out, some of these actors are now playing out their resentments or disappointments in the political arena. I think that emerges very strongly in the Polish case from her book, at least from her perspective.
1: I may just say one word about that. The role of the individual in history must never be underestimated. You know, I I first met Viktor Orbán in 1988. In 1989, he was our student in Oxford. Bright young, bright eyed, bushy tailed, enthusiast for liberalism. We identified him as one of the most skillful politicians in post-communist Europe, and we were not wrong. Mm-hmm. He's just used his skills in the other direction. But there's no question democracy would not have been, sorry, democracy would not have been so much eroded in Hungary since 2010 without the the, the skills and individual personality of, of Viktor Orban. And similarly, the the personal resentment of Yaroslav Kaczynski, in particular, who, like Auburn, was part of the opposition. There's no question about it. He was, I remember him from that time. That cannot be underestimated.
0: Thank you. So it's it's interesting. These pieces are coming together in a, in a kind of complex interaction of, if you like, grander historical forces, longer durée narratives, but really some very short-term personal factors. And I think I was also reminded while you were talking of your recent piece in Prospect, where you mentioned Pierre Husner. As And I I was very struck by that, that analysis, which was almost a sort of return of the repressed analysis that, and this is more on the side of grand historical uh, long durée forces rather than personal uh, factors, which was around Almost this, this sort of longing for, if you will, the conservative pull on on the one hand for community and belonging and nation, but also security, social contact, a social net and so on on the other, and that these two things have kind of come back to bite the projects, the democratic projects in the East in particular, if that's not an incorrect summary of your view.
1: So Pierre Asnau was a favorite pupil of Raymond Aron, brilliant man. Uh, Romanian Jewish origin, came to France as a political exile and much underestimated in his lifetime. One of the most brilliant men I've had the pleasure to know. And he wrote this incredibly insightful and foresightful essay in 1991, in which he said this. As we celebrate the triumph of universality and liberty, let us not forget the forces that gave us nationalism and communism, namely the yearning for community and identity on the one side, and for solidarity and equality on the other. And those two pairs of concepts, which which I use in my essay on the future of liberalism, community and identity, characteristic of the right, solidarity and equality of the left, You can use those to analyze Brexit, Trump, Marine Le Pen, Salvini, you name it, they're universally. And then what you have to do is to understand the specific forms in which they come in uh, particular cases. So, for example, everywhere you have this other half of society phenomenon resenting metropolitan liberal elites, but in Poland, it has the particular form that the intelligentsia has inherited the tradition of the schlachter, of the nobility, and so people feel they're being handled like peasants, <laughs> and the <laughs> nobles are looking down their noses at them. In Czech Republic, in Prague, it's praska Kavanya, it's a Prague coffee house. So in every particular case, there's a specific instance of these phenomena. A
0: local accent or a local flavour, and I was struck as well, of course, by the the possible conclusion or the possible lesson from all of this, which was, as you mentioned in this essay, Leszek Kowalkowski's 1978 essay, the title alone is programmatic, and I'll quote if you don't mind, how to be a conservative liberal socialist. <laughs> in other words, how to reconcile these apparent polar opposites in and,
1: politics. And, and it's fascinating that in Leszek Kowalkowski's essay, socialist was a noun at the end. My version of that is how to be a conservative socialist, liberal. I think liberal needs to be the, la- the, the noun, but we need to learn from conservatives about the need for community and identity, not just spend all our time talking about the rest of the world and about Europe, but also reclaim the nation, which not, not let it be the property of the nationalists and the populists. And then the socialist dimension, going to Pierre Asner's solidarity and equality, which of course, Both Orban and Peace have very successfully done. Because it is a fact that PNC Pulis 500 plus, the program of monthly payments for the children of of poorer families, has made a huge difference to people's lives. The other day I was talking to Rafał Chaskovsky in warsaw the failed candidate in the 2020 presidential election and he told me a really fascinating story he said in a small town in rural southeastern poland a mother said to me you know i i don't like kaczynski at all i don't like this at all but i will vote for them because they gave my son his first vacation
0: right yes
1: That's very telling
0: Yeah, we heard actually something similar in the Romanian case. Now, of course, the Romanian case is rather different insofar as this is not a kind of programmatic liberalism that we're seeing. We are seeing the rise of the right. We're seeing older narratives being reshaped, history being used and abused, if you will. But what we are seeing is contemporary, exactly this, contemporary concerns such as housing, education being used and and in, in effect taken to the top of the political agenda and inserted with Right-wing populism, if you like, rather than rather than something on that.
1: So you have left-wing social and economic policies together with right-wing cultural um, and and uh, policy and and foreign policy. It's a very skillful approach, uh, which takes different segments of society and finds what their particular needs are and then addresses them. Viktor Orbán does this quite targeted for specific groups, and it only works for two reasons. First of all, because you bind this all together with a heartwarming, inspiring narrative of the proud nation standing up for itself again. Uh, So so, so we come back to the beginning of our conversation, the simplistic nationalist, two-dimensional version of history is what binds together all those different interest groups. And secondly, this only works... While you've got the EU to pay for it.
0: Yes. The yep.
1: billions of euros transferred. So it is a quite specific model that only works in the conditions of EU membership.
0: So am I right in saying you would advocate for the EU being more, let's use the word muscular, about how it dispenses its funds to countries such as this with a liberal politics?
1: Absolutely. So so the transfers from the EU to Hungary have been in recent years something like. Between three and four percent of GDP, total annual GDP growth has only been four, four point one percent. So it, it's almost equivalent to the total of, and, and it's central government money which can allocate where it, it likes. And at the same time, Viktor Orbán ran the 2018 and won the 2018 election campaign by attacking Brussels. Stop mm, Brussels indeed. was one of his slogans. So I always like to say that you know. Boris Johnson preaches cakeism—have your cake and eat it—but Orbán actually practices it. He has his cake and eat it, and that cannot be right. So, what the task for Europe, specifically the EU, is to reconnect the Europe of values and the Europe of money.
0: I want to get the
1: money. You've got to respect the values.
0: Indeed. No, that's a powerful argument, and it's one we've heard you say before. Where We're grateful to hear it again in this context. Since we're on Orbán, I wondered if you had any thoughts about his, what others have defined as sort of shape-shifting nature. If, If indeed the EU succeeds in getting its act together, if you will, and not allowing Orbán to bite the hand that feeds and to continue feeding off funds while attacking them... Um, he, some are already suggesting that he's making a strategic pivot towards China, obviously with vaccine politics to some extent, too. I wondered if you had any views on this. What might his next move be? What are the prospects for illiberal politics in Hungary now under Orban?
1: So I was there uh, recently and um, met the candidate of the United Opposition, Peter mm-hmm. Lakizai uh, who's fascinating because, as you know, he's a conservative Catholic father of seven children, mayor of a small town. And so, as he as he said to me, I'm everything that Viktor Orban pretends to be. So the first thing that has to happen is he has to win. Mm. And it is, there's some suggestions. I mean, I'm sure Orban will fight very hard and use the whole state propaganda machine. But some people are saying that Orban is already preparing for an election defeat. So that, for example, the universities have been put in the hands of what are effectively foundations that he controls and many other parts of society. So there is potentially a very interesting new phase in which he and people like him control great areas of society and of the economy, but not actually, formally speaking, the government. That's point number one. Point number two as you know, in a famous speech in 2014, he said maybe liberal democracy is not the modernity of the future. Maybe the future lies with the liberal models like China. Mm-hmm. And he, he's clearly played the China card and indeed the Russia card for all it's worth. But I think one shouldn't have any doubts about this. It just doesn't work for Hungary simply to become a Chinese protectorate. That won't work inside the EU The trade, the investment, all the ties are overwhelmingly with Europe. So the, the risk, I think, is that people will be able to continue to have illiberal regimes playing both sides while remaining members of the EU, rather than, so to speak, they wholesale defect to the China camp.
0: Right. Thank you. I mean, one thing that occurred to me, actually, we haven't talked about much. We've obviously these these subjects are all inter- interwoven. Uh, We've talked quite a lot about the kind of political dimension to to this issue, uh, as in what's the genesis of illiberalism in Hungary and Poland in particular, the economic factors as well, the EU's role. We haven't talked so much about the cultural aspect. And what I'm getting at is, again, it's a little bit a version of the exceptionalism argument, but transposed to the realm of culture, Catholic values. We did talk about it a little bit in terms of the kind of conservative camp. As I say, I can fully understand there are political levers we can pull, there there are economic levers, we can pull to, to suggest that there are other ways of looking at the political construct in Hungary and Poland. But the cultural argument is quite a difficult one to overcome, I would suggest.
1: This seems to me a really interesting question. Do we prioritize the fundamental conditions of liberal democracy in Central and Eastern Europe, or do we prioritize social liberalism? Mm-hmm. I think that's a real choice, and I would argue strongly for the former. You know, and you know very well, that large parts of these societies are themselves quite socially conservative. And I think it's, it's a long-term process to have, as it were, the modernization and of, liberalization of these societies, and people have to feel that it's a free, autonomous if you like, an organic process, which, by the way, is happening. What 40 years of communism totally failed to do to the power of the Polish church, 30 years of capitalism are doing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that, that is clear. The process is happening. But I'm not sure that it is wise for the EU to put that at the top of the agenda and try and, as it were, force the process. Right. Um, I personally would say, look, my beef, and this is what I do say, by the way, my beef is not with your socially conservative agenda. I happen not to agree with it. I profoundly disagree with it. But it's your perfect right to advance it, just as it was the perfect right of British conservatives to advance such an agenda. My beef is with destroying the level praying field, destroying the basic institutions of liberal democracy and a free media. Yeah. And that's where I think we should put the the emphasis, because, of course, part of the the, the trauma of transition has precisely been rather socially conservative and fairly homogenous societies being sort of catapulted into a 21st century multicultural,
0: very open, progressive Europe. Mm. Well, thank you, Professor. That was an incredibly useful, I think, excursus. But I think what I'm getting at as well is it's less to say you must change your, your, your belief system, but it's more this use of conservative arguments to actually posit scientifically false ones, or indeed shut down voices. Can I just
1: um, add one thing on this? In my own field of history, of course, we're seeing hmm. exactly that, where historians who make well-founded, empirically substantiated claims about elements of collaboration during the Second World War, for example, or anti-Semitic actions of the anti-communist underground in the years after 1945, are sidelined, put on ice at the extreme sacked and robbed of their funding. And, And, you know, the question of cultural funding here is very important because, you know, to go with Karl Marx and the importance of material infrastructure for a moment. For Marx, civil society was a society created by an economically independent bourgeoisie. And what we have discovered with the sort of illiberal counter-revolution in East Central Europe is that you don't have a sufficiently strong independent bourgeoisie to sustain independent culture and independent civil society. If you take away the state funding and the funding by foundations connected with state-owned enterprises, many small magazines or theatres or museums are really struggling. And the only place they can look is to Western funders, where they're then accused of being foreign agents.
0: Um, I I suppose we're coming on very much now squarely back to the question of how to fight back. And again, the the classic paradox here is, and we've touched on it several times in different forms, the problem, if you like, of perceived paternalism or foreign agents, as soon as the West starts to offer solutions, as it were, to to sort of suggest how they could support pluralist projects in the East, one encounters immediate opposition, some of it legitimate, some of it not. And I just wondered whether you had any thoughts on, I suppose, again, it's the internal outside perspective, um, what people can do, as it were, civil society can do, in East Central Europe, and also what we can do in the West to support democracy in the so, in a more L-liberal sense. So to
1: start with a historical reference, just after the Gdańsk Agreement was signed at the end of the great strikes in August 1980, one of the strikers' leaders, Andrzej Vyazda, said, Our only guarantee is ourselves. And this became a famous line. And that remains true. I mean, it's ultimately it's up to the Poles and the Hungarians and the Czechs and the Slovaks and the slovenes They are the people who will defend democracy. And they are, you know, they're really standing up for it. And by the way, if you look at the election of Zuzana Čaputová in Slovakia, if you look at the defeat of Andrei Babiš in the Czech Republic, if you look at the united opposition in Hungary, the trends are not all going the other way towards illiberalism. You might say there's a are coming back, Um, so, so they will decide. The big difference is this, the very framing about foreign intervention is false in the case of an EU member state. The EU is itself a political community. In joining it, you sign up to certain values, certain norms, certain rules. And so that's the key point. It's what the EU does to ensure respect of its own norms to which people have signed up. That's part of the deal of being a member state. And as you will remember, the whole process of democratization in East Central Europe went hand in hand with Europeanization. And actually the accession process did give very powerful incentives and powerful conditionality for respecting liberal democracy. The thing we found out since is that once you're inside, you can get away with almost anything. So that, for me, if we're talking about the external actors, is the crucial thing that has to change. And it's a change that requires the EU as a whole to change in the way it works, and not just a particular policy towards... Poland or Hungary, and that addresses your problem of paternalism or colonialism. Right. If you can plausibly demonstrate that you're doing the same thing for Greece and Portugal as you are for Slovenia and Slovakia, you know, you have a stronger case.
0: Thank you. Dare I ask how optimistic you are for the prospects of liberal democracy, particularly in Hungary and Poland, given these factors that we've talked about? So the possibility of self-reliance and the fact that there are quite strong civil society groups pulling in the other direction, the fact that the EU could still react in the ways you've described. How do you feel about the prospects?
1: Well, I would say that I'm very cautiously optimistic because I think that what you see in both Hungary and Poland is people really identifying with and standing up for the pillars of liberal democracy. So what happened in Poland, for example, is that all those wonderful laws and institutions and checks and balances and the Constitution just came as a package with the return to Europe and the West. Now people are really standing up for it, and people like Lech Wałęsa are marching around with T-shirts saying "Konstytucja" (Constitution). I heard a crowd in Krakow chanting "Triple separation of powers, triple separation of powers." So you're getting a kind of constitutional patriotism. If, and it's a big if, the EU, particularly under the influence of the new German government with the Greens and the Free Democrats, becomes much more stronger and principled in this respect. And if the larger tendency in the West and the world goes back towards liberal democracy, then one can be optimistic because ultimately for these countries, the the larger trends in Europe and the wider world are very important. They didn't become fascist on their own. They became fascist because that was the way things were going in In Europe and the world. So the domestic forces, the EU as an actor, and then the global trends. And if all three of those line up in the right way, then I think one can be cautiously optimistic. But I'm afraid I wouldn't take a very big bet on it. Right. My (laughs) my formula is always pessimism of the intellect,
0: optimism of the will. Right. (laughs) What a wonderful note to draw to a close on. But if you don't mind, just one final, very short question. Uh, Perhaps it could be very long, but I'll try to make it short, which is really whether you would advocate for Academics, intellectuals being, becoming more like activists in the scenario that we're describing. It's a very difficult choice. One sticks one's neck out, so to speak. And it becomes, especially in Poland and Hungary, a question of perhaps even losing one's job. There is the, the famous case at the moment of the Universität Pedagogiczny in Kraków. You probably have colleagues there. I, I certainly have friends there. And uh, it's quite a, a worrying development to think that people can simply lose their jobs for not necessarily holding a party political line. So I wondered whether you had any brief reflections on the role of the intellectual, if you will, or and whether there is a, a sort of compulsion to become an activist.
1: So I think our job is to seek the truth, to find it as best we can, and then to tell it as best we can, Basta. That's the essence of our job, and one should never compromise on that. So we should certainly not ourselves be advancing partisan or partial versions of things. We should always remain nuanced and accurate and fair. But beyond that, if the question is, should we as citizens, as Europeans, engage to support our friends, in my case, friends often of, you know, a lifetime, who are standing up for the values we believe in in Central and Eastern Europe, Of course, we should. Absolutely, we should. Mm -hmm. To speak the truth in some circumstances, as Solzhenitsyn reminded us, is itself a highly political act. So there's a bridge between the two. But I would not put it in the shape of academics and journalists should become activists. I don't think that is right. We should. The cobbler should stick to his last. Our job is to seek the truth and to tell it but absolutely supporting our friends who are doing that in much more difficult circumstances.
0: Professor, all that remains is to thank you for your for your time, for your generosity, and for your incredibly useful and important reflections. Thank you again for your it time. It was a
1: great pleasure.